All right, back with another episode of Fresh Tracks Weekly. This week we're talking about the increase of hunters in the West along with the increase in population in the Western states. What does that mean for the future of wildlife and their habitats? And we're also going to talk about the friction between non-resident and resident hunters. Speaking of non-resident and resident hunting, I unfortunately participated in some of that friction last week as a non-resident who uh, shot a bull that definitely led to the disappointment of some residents um, who had a tag. So I felt bad about that situation, um, but I heard that after I shot my bull that a bigger bull showed up, so I'm hoping that they were able to get on that guy and kill it. Uh, but on the bright side on that hunt, I got to share it with my dad and Jace, which was super fun. And the stock ended up being pretty unique as well. We were able to ski in using skis and skins because the snow was pretty deep. As soon as you stepped off, you just fall down to your waist almost. That's tough on old man. <clears throat> Overall, I'm happy with the experience, but not gonna lie, I'm definitely craving some September archery hunts after that one. We don't have a fishing corner this week because Michael is out fishing and he's uh, shooting a cool video actually. So hopefully we'll be back next week with the fishing corner. But for now, here's some news that we found relevant this week. In Washington, the bill to make hunting and fishing a constitutional right is making progress. The bill passed out of the Ag Committee and is moving to the Rules Committee. We've talked about constitutional rights to hunt and fish in past episodes and how more and more states have been trying to get similar amendments to their constitutions, some successfully and some unsuccessfully. Many outdoorsmen have began to worry as the dynamics of their state's fish and game commissions are changing and leaning more towards animal preservation without having hunting in the equation. Most states' fish and game agencies have long been run with hunting and fishing as a primary management tool and the funding mechanism to maintain healthy wildlife populations. The North American model has widely been regarded as the most successful example of bringing wildlife back from the brink and maintaining stable populations. So when changes begin to threaten that system, sports are quick to defend it. With the current bill moving forward in Washington, it means that there will be 17 state representatives that will be voting whether or not it moves out of this ag committee. It still has a long way to become law, but if you're a Washington resident who cares about this, now would probably be a good time to call your representatives who are on that ag committee. How for Wildlife has a call to action on their website where you can find all of those representatives' contact infos. We'll put a link down in the video description. In Utah, seven different structures were recently completed to help fish and wildlife in the state. The structures stem from the Utah Wildlife Migration Initiative, which began in 2017 to study migration patterns of both fish and wildlife. With this data, they are able to identify areas of importance where projects can improve survival of their respective species. The recently completed projects include four separate stretches of wildlife exclusion fencing along highways, which will funnel wildlife to safer crossing locations, which could come in the form of zones that just have slower speed limits, or better yet, crossing structures like overpasses or underpasses. Two of the projects consisted of fish barriers where they exclude non-native species like brook trout from moving upstream into the native cutthroat trout habitat. When these species mix, the more adaptable brook trout outcompete the cutthroat that can lead to the demise of the native fish completely. The last project was a removal of a diversion dam to allow bluehead suckers and Colorado River cutthroat trout to move freely to access important rearing habitat. It might seem slightly ironic that the last three projects included both structures to stop fish passage and then also to 
improve fish passage, but it's just a case-by-case -case basis what's best for the area and best for the species. But anyway, these projects were completed through a collaborative effort between multiple agencies and groups, including the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, Utah Department of Transportation, Utah's Habitat Council, the U.S. Forest Service, the U.S. Fish Wildlife Service, Helper City, and Trout Unlimited. It's cool to see Utah, among other states, implementing these projects to better understand wildlife movements and mitigate these problems. There's also many other upcoming projects in multiple states, so we'll have to keep updating as we learn more about these. The TRCP recently posted a call to action to comment on the new Forest Service amendments to their nationwide management plans. In particular, the promotion of old-growth forest conditions. Old-growth forests have become increasingly rare from logging practices, wildfire, insects, and disease. The Forest Service has recognized the value of maintaining old-growth forests, which initiated the process of amending these plans. The hope is that it will enhance the agency's ability to utilize active stewardship, allowing for restoration to maintain forest resilience and reduce uncharacteristic wildfire. The goal is to also allow the agency to implement management to promote young-growth habitats where old-growth is not present, creating the necessary conditions to eventually have that old-growth. Promoting and conserving old growth can benefit everything from keeping streams and rivers cold for fish to providing important wintering cover and habitat for wildlife. So what the actual changes are yet to be determined, but that's why the TRCP is encouraging hunters and anglers to comment on these management plans to make sure that their voices are heard in regards to how it will actually be implemented. An interesting article was recently published by the Wildlife Society that summarized a research project that's trying to understand how widespread the impacts from renewable energy could be from analyzing the carcasses of birds found at solar and wind farms. She's been using what is known as stable isotope analysis on the bird's feathers to determine where they came from, whether they migrated into the area, or were local. Stable isotope analysis is super cool. The actual analysis part is way over my head, but I was able to participate in some of the grunt work collecting feathers and prepping samples for a different research project for sage grouse. But the dumbed-down version of the stable isotope analysis is that they can match elements from the feathers to elements of a geographic area. In the case of this study, they were able to use the amount of hydrogen located in the bird's feathers, which would indicate the amount of precipitation in the area that the bird came from. But anyway, to just geek out a little more, the uses of stable isotopes have been used in a variety of uses, identifying ancient material, dating things back thousands of years, used in hydrology applications, identifying where various water sources come from. But more more wildlife researchers are beginning to also use this tool, which is pretty cool. But anyway, back to the renewable energy study, the researchers found that 51% of the birds that died at wind farms were non-local and 71% of the birds that died at solar farms were non-local. They hypothesized that the glittering solar panels may look like water to migrating birds, attracting individuals that had migrated long distances. Alright, with that we are jumping into the deeper dive on the impacts of everybody moving out west. Increased hunter numbers in the West. That's what we're talking about for deeper dive. Yeah. But not just that hunter numbers, also just increase in population. Population, because yeah. our buddy Andrew McKean at Outdoor Life is who's responsible for this version. In inspired this inspired. conversation. He, he wrote about how resident population growth in the Rocky Mountains was kind of his basic premise at the start, is creating a lot of friction between residents and non-residents. Am I right in that, in the way I've said that? Yeah, yeah. I feel like he talked a lot about this, like, the non-resident, uh, why everybody, well, the title of the article was why everybody loves to hate non-resident elk hunters. Yeah. That, that's, but, I mean, like, it's not, I think we can expand this conversation to outside of elk hunting. and. Oh, yeah. Um, 
outside of resident versus non-resident. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of people have just, people who hunt public land, people who hunt in the West have noticed increased crowding. And so that's, yeah. that, that causes the concern. I think that's at the root of mm-hmm. why people get upset. Yeah. And then a lot of times you can blame non-residents. A lot of times people like to blame non-residents that's or uh, just whatever. There's a lot of things you can blame. Right. You, you can blame us, like, right? A lot right. of people are going to want to blame us for right. in, increased crowd, crowding in the West. Absolutely. So, we, we get it all the time. That that's Right. But, and if people want to think that, that's, you know, that's up to them. I, you know, I, I always go back to, and, and Andrew touched on this, about resident population growth. So right here in front of me, I've got the state of Colorado and the state of Idaho because the Rocky Mountains have grown in resident population growth more rapid than any geographic area of the state other than a couple of the southwest states of Nevada and Arizona and Utah and a couple of the southeast states of the Carolinas and Georgia, I think. Yeah, and I think that's at the root of the problem is it's just like there's just more people. Yeah, lots of people. Whether... And like non-residents, each Western state has different, you know, methods of restricting and capping mm-hmm. non-residents. And most of them also have methods of somewhat restricting and capping residents. Yep. But other times there's no cap on resident hunting, which uh, could be a thing of the past. Who knows? Or in, in the near future. I hope not. But yeah. I, I mean, but I think, I think there's a lot of, like, like we said, there's a lot of things, but I think... We have to, when you just look, take a step back and look at the big picture, there's just so many people, so many more people that are moving into mm-hmm. the Western United States. Yeah. And just For the same reason I moved here. I'm part of the problem. I moved <laughs> here in 19, I, my wife and I came here for our honeymoon in 1989 to this spot right here in Bozeman. And we ended up moving here shortly thereafter. So... You were born here. Yeah, it's going to be like, <clears throat> who's, uh, yeah. of, of <laughs> who's, three, all, who's of, all born in Montana? Right, of the no. three of us, Marcus. Yeah, I'm is. about to get the le- my least favorite question since <laughs> moving here. Where are you from? <laughs> but uh, I've only been here 30, yeah, I'm, I'm going on 33 years. Yeah, me too. So I, I always <laughs> liked it. I, <laughs> I forgot about that. I yeah. I moved so. the year Marcus was born. Uh, but, uh, you know, no matter how far back you go, I, I have the Colorado chart here in front of me, Colorado in 19, 1989, the year that I came to Montana on my honeymoon, 30, 3,276,000 people at the end of 2022. I don't know what it is that in 2023, but 5.8 million. So what's that? 2.55 million more people. Right. In Colorado. Idaho has <laughs> really taken uh, They've taken it in uh, a serious beating. So in 1990, they had a million and 12,000 people. Now they have just under 2 million people. Montana, we had 810,000 people. And now we have 1.12 million people. And it'd be interesting to know why a lot of these people moved here. but And, and you can't apply it to everybody but I, I feel like a lot of people do enjoy some sort of outdoor recreation right uh, especially of those who move to the western u.s yep and i'm not going to say it's not like every single one of them is a hunter but a lot of people are outside and just 
knowing that also has an impact on wildlife and habitats and urban sprawl developments, right? All of it. I mean, obviously this human population is going to have an impact on, on wildlife. And as we obviously like to look at it as from the perspective of hunters, it's going to impact that. Right. And so I think it, it's hard to try to get at what exactly, you know, it's going to look like 10 years from now if trends continue the way they are. Like, it's it's going to be very different. Very and that's just hard yeah. to stomach, I think. It's hard to stomach for me. I, you yeah. know, love I, the current system that we have. I I don't know. How, how old are you, Jace? 27. 27. So I'm 32 years older than you. In 32 years, do you think we're going to have more wildlife or less wildlife in the West? I am optimistic. Okay. I think we will have more. I like because the optimism. I don't know, for a couple of reasons. I think we have very good wildlife management systems. Mm -hmm. I think that people are starting to put more emphasis on caring about wildlife and just, like, have a greater value. Mm -hmm. Even just from, like, private landowner perspective, who and sometimes, and there's still plenty of uh, examples of private landowner tolerance being super low for, for wildlife. But now, like, I feel like sometimes, or in certain aspects, that changes and there's more tolerance and more private land owner tolerance. But the the big crux of the issue is, like, I think, is habitat. I, that's going to be the biggest limiting factor. And so, like, being able to identify these develop, you know, critical areas, primarily winter range. Yep. I mean, not, not, not to say that summer range and other parts of the season don't matter, but I feel like a lot of times the bottleneck is winter range availability. Yep. And I think that a lot of states have done a really good job at preserving protecting winter range we we have in montana yeah and and not and like there obviously we can find examples good and bad on both sides and maybe we'll and we're going to continue to lose habitat but it's just like can we find a way to manage and like to keep enough to keep at least current population levels and i don't know i mean what's are, are you more pessimistic in that respect i, Do you think I we'll don't know what, what's your projection jace more wildlife or less wildlife? I would like to say more wildlife. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. as long as we people just make the right decisions, I think we can get there. But I yeah. think it, it's, it's just harder. Inevitably, it's just going to be harder. It's a harder task with the more people that the, as the populations grow across the world. Yeah. So. And you touched on it, Marcus. It's the year-round recreation also. You know, we always used to think that hunting was – the big contributing factor outside of weather and disease and stuff. But we have a crazy amount of year-round recreational activity that has grown way faster than hunting has grown. And now we're reading the studies of how impactful that is. So I look at Montana. The year I moved here, we gave away just under 400 ram tags. Right now we give away less than two hundred gram tags. Yeah, right. no, and that's and, an and example that's, where that's it's, one it example. has decreased. But Me- mule deer numbers, the, the charts in every state, Montana included, from nineteen ninety to today, are way down. Pronghorn numbers in Wyoming at the time were over six hundred thousand. Right now they're a little over three hundred thousand. Uh, we had a significant weather event last year. But even before the significant weather event, we were only yeah. in the 400,000s. Right. So, But we got to always remember, rewind, 
80, 90 years before that. Yeah. And all of the numbers were low. Right. And then humans came, that's after humans entered the landscape. Yep. We can't, we, we decided that there was a problem and, and we, we increased that number. Right. And like it went and I sure hope it wasn't a peak. I, like it, and it, maybe it was, but right. maybe, and maybe like the, the demand on resources and, you know, more and more people is going to be the demise of, of wildlife. But I hope right. not. I think right. that there's, and like, like I, I shouldn't say that every single wildlife species is going to continually grow. I mean, it's like, but I think that there's going to be peaks and valleys mm-hmm. and I don't know. I, I, do you think it's a, do you think it's doom and gloom? I, mean, I, I don't. I never buy into doom and gloom because okay. if, if I bought into the doom and gloom, all these things that we have on the whiteboard here are why we show up every day to advocate for conservation and wild things. I wouldn't show up if I wasn't the optimist and, and thought that you guys are going to have a brighter hunting future than I do. Uh, the other question I'd ask to that, uh, and I'm just asking these kind of rhetorically, but they're very relevant to the article that Andrew wrote, is even if population numbers stayed the same, human population, yeah. and resident hunter numbers stayed the same, and wildlife numbers stayed the same, do you think with the trends that we're seeing in private land access, which is a huge part in a state of Montana that two-thirds is private, do you think we're going to have more access or less access? in 30 years, 32 years, when you're my age, Jace? I, this one's hard. Yeah. Again, the optimist in me wants to think that we'll have more, but unless there's a fundamental switch in how everything works, it probably won't go that way. Right. Because so. in the same time when you have increased, like when a landowner, for instance, recognizes the value of a mature bull elk, mm-hmm. and like chances are they want you know more Money. mature bull elk, which means less hunting pressure, and they can charge an outfitter or have an outfitter guide there for a stupid high fee. Right. But there's also programs like the block management program. There's there's a lot of efforts that are being made to try to somehow uh, make it more of a democracy of hunting, for, for lack of a better term, but just like providing access to those who don't have the deepest pockets. Mm-hmm. And so if there can be, if we can continue to, develop programs like that and promote programs like block management, then maybe. Yeah. Um, I know there's other, there was talk of people buying ranches and having a, some sort of a, a tag lottery for prep to be able to hunt right. private land ranches. That's another avenue that who knows could right. grow, but it's just like, it is hard because I mean, it's a capitalistic, <laughs> capitalistic society. So, I mean, like right. if you have this, big value or you know there's a bull elk's worth a lot of money basically and so yeah. how do you make that a public resource if it in, demand continues to increase I, it's tough i yeah. don't i don't know i i just throw those out there because i look at you guys and i want uh, someone before me made hunting what it was for my generation right and i feel the obligation that with you guys i got to do what i can and with our platforms so that you guys have it better than I had it because someone did the same for me. But I look at all these factors and I think about them not because I give up. We, we, we only have one path forward. Yeah. That's more wildlife on the hills, more accessible land that 
is going to take a lot of creative ways to keep it accessible or to add accessible land or we just give up. <laughs> I ain't giving up. Right. So it, all of this does get back to a large part. And that's where the article Andrew wrote about uh, non-residents kind of getting, <laughs> you're the one who gets pushed off the end of the bench. Right. When, when residents say, you know what, there's more of us now and there's less accessible land for us. We got to make a change somewhere. And the only place where there's any play in the shock absorber is the resident, non-resident allocation. And we see it, you know, we saw it a couple of years ago in Wyoming, changing the allocation between resident and non-resident for moose, goat, sheep, and bison. Uh, Colorado's talking about it right now. Yeah. Uh, many years ago, New Mexico cut their allocation to non-residents. Uh, Oregon cut their allocation to non-residents in, I think, 2009 or 10. Right. So, But we, at the same time, I think... Yeah, like we talked about this, the increase in resident hunters, and then it's it's hard to like income try to take into account all of the different factors because there's just so many so many things. I think there's also a worry and a concern that there's more more hunter days afield. So you know, just because you bought a license doesn't mean that you hunted exactly five days. Right. Some people are going and spending two weeks, and you know. And I think that was one of the things that Andrew wrote about about non-residents is the complaining from re- coming from residents. Like these guys come in and they hunt for fourteen days, right? And it's just like that many more hunter days on the landscape has a, a pretty big impact on, yeah. um, you know, the enjoyment of the hunt for whoever yeah. else is out on that same land. I think Andrew does a really good job of explaining that it's not just one thing; it's a lot of things. And I, I mean, yeah. I get I, I get the frustration, but I guess maybe I'm able to look in the rearview mirror because I'm great <laughs> and say, here are the things I've observed, and there were challenges everywhere along the way in this path right. that, that I've lived, and it's just a matter of are we going to do something about it or are we going to get on Facebook and complain <laughs> about it? And I, I'm sure you guys are tired of me saying build a bigger pie. Well, that's what, yeah, I like what we were talking about before we started recording is this you talking about like the kind of the scarcity idea and then you're right. just constantly arguing over a smaller and smaller pie. Like right. how do we get less people out there? How do we get, right. you know, less whatever? And the writing on the wall, if it continues the way it is, there's, it doesn't matter how much we argue over that stuff. There's going to continue to be increased demand for access and for wildlife. So right. rather than trying to argue over who does and doesn't get access, why don't we worry about making the pie bigger, more wildlife, more access? I mean, that's that, those are the, the fights that I would prefer to fight rather right. than just like, no, screw you guys. You guys can't come here or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And that's going to happen. Like both both things are right. going to happen. Like right. they are gonna, we are going to restrict people, but continually thinking that that's the only problem mm-hmm. is – it's, it's just the not, right, you're it, focusing it, on one tiny right. part of the problem and not looking at the big picture. Right. It's what I call the race to zero. Yeah. I mean, by the time you're my age, Jace, if that's all we worry about is fighting over a smaller piece of pie every year, 
we're not gonna have much pie left. No, there'll be you... some crumbs left over. That's about it. <laughs> so that's why we get up every day, and that's why we come here, and that's why we do all the things we do. And you know, uh, we'll have people who want to simplify it and and criticize us as being the problem, and I accept that. Yeah, you know, that 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 comes with the territory we operate in, but it doesn't take my eye off what I know is the solution. And the solution is conservation, advocacy for the wildlife and the access. Yeah. And those two are what gets us through this. For sure. No, and that's, I I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about like our, like, at running this platform and like impacting oh, the right. amount of hunters that are on the landscape. Every it go, it we, goes through my mind for do, sure. Do we ever have but, a day where we don't have that discussion in some context? Yeah, no, I mean, we no, do. but it's just like that being said, it's just like try like trying to build rather than tear down is kind mm-hmm. of the, the simplest way I can, I can put it. And it's just, I don't know. It's just like constantly going through my head of, of how, how do we, Make things better, wildlife habitat, mm-hmm. more or more wildlife, more habitat, basically more right. access. But it's just right. it's tough because yeah, when you're sitting there arguing about how small the pie is getting, I don't know. It's no, just, it's, it, it is, and it's the you know the human nature in all the studies are that we were born uh, and evolved with a reason why the default is the scarcity idea that we have to preserve or, or get for ourselves what we can because back in the day we didn't have collaborative mechanisms to to do a lot of this stuff they did there wasn't a lot of abundance so the human mindset is i got to focus on what i can get for me right that that's there's nothing wrong with that that's the human tendency it, we evolved that way the the what they call abundance theory or abundance is let's make more Let's mm-hmm. make the economy bigger. You know, the abundance theory is taught a lot in business school. How do you make economic growth better for everybody? Right. Well, it applies to just about everything in our life, too, when you get to it. Dude, that's what this really is. Is Are we going to accept the scarcity model of, okay, it's going to get worse and worse every year, and we're just going to fight over our little piece? Well, eventually someone says, well, I'm going to just go buy that ranch then. And then they block out more people. Right. Or whatever it is. Or we do the do the other things, but I I, I don't want I, I hope we never get to the point. But I know a lot of people are already advocating that everything in Montana should go to a limited entry draw for residents. I mean, it's that way in in a, uh, lot, of in a lot of states. Yeah, I mean, Utah, I, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. I I mean, yeah, I I hate that idea personally. Just you know, growing up here and it's like being able to hunt deer and elk every year is. Right. pretty special but at, at the same time it's like if it does continue to if we continue to see more and more resident hunters and or just hunters in general that's, right yeah and what do you do or, or oregon went that way to where everything for a lot of their species went to limited draw even for residents and the state kept growing and growing and growing and then the non-resident portion went from 10 percent to five percent and for some species it's two percent yeah so uh, it affects everybody. If you're a non-resident, it affects you. No matter where you live, you're you're affected by it. Or if you're a resident, you're affected by it. Right. So the the common thread of all that is 
the bigger pie. Everyone's going to buy me an apron. I'm like, I'm put a baker hat on me. I'm so tired of you saying build a bigger pie. <laughs> so I think Andrew's article does a good job of pointing it out and reminding us that these are where the arguments lead us, but they're not, it's not the answer. Right. It's not the sustainable answer. No, yeah, it's it's part of it, but it's not. It's a it's a small part of it. Yeah. Looking at the big picture, like people love to focus on one aspect of an issue, and right, it's never that simple. So, no. Anyway, I don't know. It was kind of a rambling conversation, but just well, some thoughts that were in our minds this morning. And yeah, how many states are you going to apply for this year, Jace? Mm, Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada. Five or six? About five. Yeah, we'll call it five. Yeah, yeah I'll do, same, I'll do seven, seven or eight, eight probably. Yeah. But right. I don't know how much of an outlier we are in that. Like how yeah. many? Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know either. It's So, uh, you know, I, I just ask that because that puts you as a non-resident in all those states that For you're sure. applying. Yeah. And so... Where whatever the, those and, and it illustrates uh, my point of, of asking that was we're all non-residents in 49 other states. Yeah. So whatever we're asking for for this treatment of non-residents in our state, expect the same 49 other places. If and I get it, we're a state-based system, right? Mm-hmm. The beneficiaries of the public trust for that state are the citizens of that state, not the non-residents. So. When you have a state-based system, you're going to have some of these weird outcomes too. And it's, I'm with you, Marcus. It is not that simple, <laughs> but I don't know if we've solved any of the world's problem. Um. Other, other than if you own real estate in Colorado or Idaho, uh, you're a beneficiary of all their population growth. Right. Or in Bozeman. Yeah. So. Well, anyway, I think there's obviously a lot more room for, future discussions in this in this realm but uh yeah this some food for thought for today i guess yeah i'm going to continue with my abundance thinking and the world can think i'm crazy but i just i don't know any other way to think (laughs) so but anyhow thanks andrew appreciate you instigating a bunch of discussion here at our office and i'm sure across the hunting world go to outdoor life and check out that article if you haven't uh it's interesting to read and to think about All right. Thank you, guys.